Welcome to NLP with Cody G. With Cody G. We go deep into the psychology of ethical selling using neuro-linguistic programming. Is go over a few different key points that I think really make up NLP. And the reason why I want to do this video is because so many different people have random ideas about what NLP even is. And instead of explaining what it is, I want to show you a core foundation and some principles that we kind of live by. I'm a Christian and we believe in the Ten Commandments. These are like our 14 commandments of NLP or the overlying beliefs that we try to follow that make up the entire body of knowledge of neurolinguistic programming. So thank you guys for joining me. My name is Cody G. I am a sales and NLP trainer. I train and certify people in the beautiful art of NLP. And it's something that I love doing so much because I truly, truly believe at the core, NLP has the ability to change someone's life forever. And not just the ability, but it has the probability. Meaning that there's a high likelihood, a high success rate that if you take an NLP certification class from someone who's reputable, not a cheap online certification program, but if you actually go through a live or virtual training, that your life is going to be impacted for the better. For the better. And let me just dive into a few things right now that I think are going to demonstrate that very, very quickly. So we have 14 presuppositions in NLP. What is a presupposition? Something that we presuppose to be true. Overlying beliefs that are um, evident and relevant in this field of NLP. And the reason why I think these are so important, it's one of the things that you learn on your very first day of certification class. So it's it's basic. But the, the difference here is that some people may hear this and say, yeah, that makes sense. Or yeah, that sounds like a great idea, a great concept. And what I tell people is that when you get trained and certified, your goal should not just be to learn new techniques and tricks and strategies. You'll learn that stuff 100%. But your goal should be to embody these presuppositions. So it's not just something that you heard, but it's something that you understand and it becomes something that you do and eventually someone that you become. So without further ado, let me dive into them and see how many we get through in this video or this audio. Number one, always respect the other person's model of the world. Tony Robbins says, always, always respect and appreciate the other person's model of the world. This is number one. What does this mean? It means that what we should first do is try on someone's hat or try on someone's glasses of what they see when they step out into the world. And it doesn't matter how close you are to your best friend, even a brother or a sister that grew up in the same household as you, they still have their own unique model of the world because they have a different filter of reality based on their experiences, their decisions, their upbringing, their values, their beliefs, their identity. And it's so important and it's so relevant, especially now more than ever, to realize that we're all so, so different but we're all so connected and so alike at the same time. And so essentially, this doesn't mean that we need to fully agree with the other person's model of the world, but we do need to accept it as being true, at least for them. You've all heard of the term perception is reality. And someone's perception of what the world is, is going to make up their own internal reality or IR, as we call it in NLP. And that makes up what they experience in the world. I think that by now we can agree that whatever meaning we assign something determines or dictates the experience we're going to have from it. Meaning that if I say 
public speaking is very scary. If I think that initially, I'm going to have a scary experience. Someone else's model of the world might be that public speaking is exactly what they need uh, to get them in an upbeat state, a state that really allows them to thrive, to be at their fullest potential. And I must first respect their model of the world before I can judge it. And here's the thing. If you're in a sales capacity, how many of you have tried to, I know I have, tried to sell something to someone without first understanding what they really are looking for in a course, in a program, in coaching, and every single time that you do that, turns out to be horrible because you're selling to them in a way that you think they should buy or you're selling to them based on outcomes and benefits that you find valuable instead of getting to the root cause of what they find valuable. And that all comes from number one, respecting that person's model of the world. Uh, number two, behavior and change are to be evaluated in terms of context and ecology. Very, very important. Ecology is something that we talk so big on in NLP. And what it means essentially is, is this safe for me? Is it safe for the other person? And is it safe for the world? Is it making the world a better place if we do this? And we might ask someone, is that ecological for you in all contexts? Let's say that someone has some sort of um, problem with eating or with not working out the way that they want to. I might ask them, is working on this situation going to be ecological for you in the long term? And oftentimes I think that we fail to realize, and this kind of comes down to the, the morals and the ethical part, especially in, in selling. Everything that you do in a sales process should be ecological to your client and to everyone that it's serving. Um, I might skip through a few of these just to go over the most relevant ones that I find to make it as, as quick as we possibly can. Uh, we do take a deeper dive in certification programs, but for the sake of this video or this audio, I'm going to go over ones that are just very quick and easy to digest. Uh, number three, resistance in a client is a sign of lack of rapport. This was a smack in the face the first time I heard it, and it became even more strong of a smack in the face each time I heard it thereafter when I realized that the, the resistance that I was getting from people in my life, and you can replace that word client with person, resistance in a person is a sign of lack of rapport. I realized that every single time I got resistance, initially it came from the energy that I was bringing off. Think about it this way. If someone, let's say your mom, for example, your dad were to tell you to go take out the trash, would you do so? Most likely, yeah, there might be some resistance. Oh, this person's nagging me again. But think about if an idol that you look up to invited you over for dinner and then asked you to take out the trash after you're done eating. You would be so grateful to do that because of the rapport that you guys had, the respect that you've given that person. Same way in this situation, talk about a sales call. A lot of times people say, oh, this person didn't want to open up. They're being so resistant to the questions that I'm asking. When instead of focusing on that person being resistant, you need to focus on what resistance you had internally. And I, I see it so often when I train people in selling is that the energy that they have asking certain questions is not optimal for getting the outcome or the answers that they want to. Um, here we go. There are no resistant clients, only inflexible communicators. Effective communicators accept and utilize all communication presented to them. And this kind of comes down to, I'll dive into it a little bit later, um, with number 12, the meaning of communication is the response that you get. This is a very, very powerful one. It doesn't matter how great of a communicator or of a speaker I think I am, if my audience doesn't resonate with it, or if my wife 
doesn't accept it and doesn't think that same way based on my communication, that's only going on up here, that belief that I'm having. If I really want to be a great communicator, I have to realize that I'm responsible for 100% of communication. Most people think that we're responsible for 50 and the other person is responsible for 50 in a conversation, but in all actuality, you are responsible for not just what you say, but how it gets delivered and how it gets received. That's the kicker right there that oftentimes people say, oh, well, I said what I had to say. They took it that way. That's on them. That's one way of being. Is it right or wrong? I don't know. But is it effective or ineffective? I'd probably say it's an ineffective way of walking throughout the world as opposed to realizing when I say these things, how is it going to land for that person? Once you understand those things, you become a very, very powerful communicator. And we teach you different methods of communication, of understanding rapport and human behavior in NLP that help just kind of bring these points home. Let's look at number four. People are not their behaviors. Accept the person and change the behavior. Um, another way I like to think about this is identify the unresourceful behavior. Because oftentimes we're, we're doing things, we have a model that we've picked up on. Let's say a behavior of mine is that I always leave dishes when I'm done eating and take care of them the next day. It's a behavior. I may have modeled that growing up from seeing maybe an older brother doing that or seeing my parents doing that. It's a model or a strategy that I picked up. Now, let's say that my wife doesn't like that behavior and wants to change. She could say that I'm just a lazy person. I'm a dirty person. I don't clean up after myself. Or she can accept me for who I am and realize that that one part is just simply a behavior that can be changed. Because we're always learning things, especially from the time that we're born till about seven years old. We have what's called an imprint period. We soak up everything like a sponge to be true. If we see our parents doing a certain thing, we adopt that as our model or our strategy unconsciously. That's the scary part is that we're not consciously saying, I want to do that too, but we're unconsciously adopting that as true. So accept the person, change the behavior. You're kind of peeling off the layer of who someone is. And it really helps you because it allows judgment to dissipate in a sense where you're not quick to judge people, but you're quick to understand them. That behavior that person's doing, that's not who they are. That's just simply a behavior. You peel off the layers of who they are and you really begin to see them at their core uh, level. Number five, super, super, one of my favorite ones, very powerful. Everyone is doing the best they can with the resources they have available. Behavior is adaptable and the current behavior is the best choice available. Every behavior is motivated by a positive intent. Woo, man, this is a hard one to teach people. I'll, I'll admit, um, it initially was a hard one for me to, to fully accept. It's easy to hear it and say that makes sense. But then our mind goes to think of a hundred different ways in which this is not true or when we haven't seen it play out in our favor. And, you know, what I think about with this one is that with someone's current level of consciousness, with their memories they have, with their experiences, with their decisions, in each moment, they are doing the best that they think they can be doing. It doesn't mean we, we let them off the hook because they're acting their best and they can't get any better. Not at all. But in that moment, let's say when you get triggered and you snap on someone, 
in that moment, you think the best thing to do is to deliver your message in that way that's snappy so they understand or insert a hundred different scenarios there. We're doing the best that we can with that current level of consciousness that we have in that moment. And this really helps you, helps me rather, to understand people at a different level. Um, I know a lot of friends that I have and colleagues grew up having bumping heads with their parents. When I learned this one and learned the things that supported it in the body of knowledge of NLP, it really allowed me to have grace for the first time ever for my mother. Because I realized that the way that she behaved when I was growing up was the way that she thought was best, was probably the way that her parents behaved when she was growing, when they were growing up and the way that their parents behaved and so on and so forth. And in that moment, that's all that she thought that she was supposed to do, whether it was yelling at someone, hitting someone. And when you really understand this, again, the, the grace that you give people, it just rushes over your entire body in every situation and resentment begins to fall off that you may have had for some people. Um, number six, that's very correlated to number four, calibrate on behavior. The most important information about a person is that person's behavior. I'll skip over that one because we went into a lot of that with number four. Um, number seven is actually very, very directly related as well. The map is not the territory. The thoughts we have and the words we use are not the event or the item they represent. Think about it in the sense there's always more going on. If I showed you a map of San Diego County, that's not San Diego County. It's a map of it. That map represents the county that I'm trying to show you, but it is not that county itself. So think about this in the sense that we're always running different maps, different models, different behaviors in our head. And we can't, just because someone's running a negative or unresourceful map, doesn't mean that we can relate that person to being in that way. That's just the state that they're in. Uh, it's really the structure of meaning. When we think about it in the sense that everything has meaning, how do we structure the meaning that we're giving? we're giving something and we can't do it based on the map or the thing that we're seeing, but we have to do it on the thing that it actually is. Uh, number eight, you are in charge of your mind and therefore your results. This is one of the biggest things that you learn as an NLP practitioner, <laughs> not a sentence, but the way to embody this as a lifestyle, as a practitioner, as a way of being. One of the biggest things that I think about when I started my NLP journey, when I was just becoming a practitioner, was I learned how possible I was. I learned how every single thing that I thought that was stuck with my behaviors, my attitudes, my actions, the beliefs that I had, the thoughts that I had about certain things could be shifted and could be changed. And that, my friends, is when you become very, very powerful. We've often met people that are in a victim mindset that blame it on the weather is why the way that I am, my gender, my ethnicity, where I grew up, the parents that I had, the parents that I didn't have, the mindset that I have, the, the different things that happened to me are creating the way that I am. The scary part is a lot of that stuff is true. But my question is, are we going to get latched onto that idea of living in effect or being at cause? Living in effect is also known as a victim mode. And I'm sure you can think of at least one person in your life right now who lives in that mode with everything. Every single thing that goes on, they find one negative thing to focus on. It's a very disempowering way to be. We need to be very aware of the pictures, the sounds, the feelings that we're creating in our mind because those same pictures, sounds, and feelings that are created in here 
are going to project out onto the world that we begin to experience. People have all the resources they need to succeed and to achieve their desired outcomes. Here's, I love this one. There are no unresourceful people, only unresourceful states. Again, Tony Robbins talks about this one quite often, um, that it's never a lack of resources. It's a lack of resourcefulness. Now, this is a game changer when you can understand that it's the state that you're in that dictates a lot of times the mood that you have, what you say, how you show up in the world. Think about this. If you were having a conversation with your best friend on the phone, are you going to stutter? Are you going to be nervous of what to say? Most likely not. But now let's say you're at a job interview. You're on a stage speaking. You're talking to someone that you find attractive for the very, very first time. The state that you're in is going to dictate everything else that happens. It's not that you don't have the resources to find what you need. Now more than ever, we have a phone, a computer, every single thing at our fingertips with so much information. It's not a lack of resources while we don't have what we want. It's usually always a lack of resourcefulness. All procedures should increase wholeness. Think about our life in the terms of different pieces that make up one whole. Relationships, finances, spirituality, health and fitness, personal growth, um, family. We have six different areas we call the wheel of life in NLP, but every single thing that we do in NLP should not limit or take something away, but it should increase the greater whole. And that's where we always check for ecology. There is only, uh, there is only feedback. There is no failure, only feedback. When you realize that, it allows you to let the pride and let the ego go that we all have, myself included, and realize that when I'm learning, I might fail. When I'm failing, I will learn. And when you go through life with a mindset like that, you really start to become unstoppable. When you live without fear of how you look, of how you should be performing or acting, whether it's in school, whether it's in a job interview, a sales call, just showing up in life, you understand that every single thing that you do is just one giant piece of feedback and you become invincible. Uh, the meaning of communication is the response that you get. One of my favorite ones uh, we talked about earlier. Now, when we think of communication, there are really three components. If you think about it like a pie, for those of you that are watching this on video, there are really three components that make up communication. Component number one, which um, consists of about 55% of communication is actually going to be physiology or your body language. Here's what I mean. If you were to walk into a networking event and see me standing up against the wall, mean look, my arms crossed, kind of scouring the room, I don't need to say a word and you're already going to hear me say I don't want to talk to you. You're not going to feel that warm and welcome invitation to come and say hi. About 38% is going to be our tonality in a conversation uh, when we emphasize a different word or fluctuate our tone up or down. And this is why it's been so interesting. I've trained well over 500 different salespeople at the time of recording this, and a lot of salespeople have a similar script. And the reason why good salespeople can read a script and have a, a good outcome versus a great salesperson reading the same script and having a great outcome, it's not the words because the words are exactly the same, but it's how they are being delivered. And that transitions us into that last piece of the pie, number seven, which is words. Not, sorry, not, not number seven, 
7%, which is words. Only about 7% of the in emotional intensity of communication is made up by the words that we choose. I'm gonna give you a sentence real quick. Um, I believe there's like six or seven words in here and you're gonna hear how it can mean something almost, almost different with every single emphasis that I make on it. Here's a sentence. I didn't crash your car. Now really listen to this. I didn't crash your car. For those of you watching, you can see my body language change as well. I didn't crash your car. What's that insinuating? Someone else probably didn't. I didn't crash your car. Most likely means I didn't do it and I'm being firm about that. I didn't crash your car. Could have hit a curb. I didn't crash your car. Sounds like you crashed someone else's car. I didn't crash your car. Did you crash their bike, their unicycle, their truck? Same exact sentence, emphasis on different words changes the meaning of that sentence. We can use that to create different outcomes with the language patterns that we use. Number 13, the law of requisite variety. The person or system with the most behavioral flexibility is going to control the outcome. What this means is that in any situation, we're given two options. Option number one, to be stiff and rigid like this pin that cap fell off, but it doesn't, doesn't bend too well. The harder I put pressure on this, the more likely it's going to be to snap. A lot of people go through their life like a stiff and rigid pin. Anytime someone challenges their beliefs on something, they're holding on to it so, so firmly that all you have to do is find one counter argument or counter belief that shows something different and that person's whole argument begins to crumble. Uh, we see it in politics, no matter which side you're on, people that hold on to their beliefs so firmly have the, the most likelihood for that belief to completely just unravel and fall to pieces. In any argument, the person with the most behavioral flexibility is going to be the one that wins. Any situation, if you can bend and be flexible, maybe it's with your communication. Maybe it's with the way that you respond. You start to play a game of chess instead of checkers. Think about it this way. Initially, it can be somewhat hard to learn, but anytime that you're playing a game that we call life and you're using chess to navigate versus checkers just going straight ahead, you're almost always gonna come out victorious. Uh, I think about this, that I was in this class one time and within the first like 45 minutes of being in a class, the lights went off. And what the teacher did, he kept going. And he said, hey, I'm gonna just be very flexible. I hope that you guys are too. The lights are off. Here's the flashlight, here's me. Let's have some fun teaching in the dark until they come back on. Versus the average person that may have started freaking out. Oh my gosh, it's the first day of class. What do I do? Does everyone go outside? Just kept on going. And would you know, about two minutes later, the lights came on. And it really showed power and presence from that leader who was teaching because they were able to utilize behavioral flexibility. Um, number 14, very much aligned with number 10. All procedures should be designed to increase choice. This is not part of the presupposition, but here's something to consider. Even if it's simply the illusion of choice. In NLP, we teach something called double binding. And for all my salespeople out there, think about if you asked your prospect, a lot of people after getting off the phone call, uh, they say, let me think about it. Oh, okay, sounds good. Um, are you gonna give me a call back? Or okay, when's a good time to follow up with you? And the person's like, um, I, I don't know, Tuesday. And they're just giving some filler answer versus leading that person with a double bind. And it might sound something like this. 
is it best to follow up with you Tuesday at two or Wednesday at four? And you're not saying, should I follow up with you? You're asking them, which time should I? Are you going to be paying cash or card today? You're assuming the sale, assuming the close by using a double bind. You're not saying, do you want this? Because if you believe in what you sell and you know what you sell can help someone, it shouldn't be a question of if you want this. It's simply, how would you like to move forward today? And that double bind allows you to give the illusion of choice there. Now, of course, if your prospect doesn't want it, they're going to say, hey, Cody, I don't want it, <laughs> which is totally fine too. But you're giving that illusion that there's some sort of choice there and that they're in control, even though you're helping to lead the outcome. And a sales situation should simply just be about you leading the outcome and helping them make the next logical step by taking the pressure off of them. Uh, if you're a parent, instead of saying, uh, hey, little Johnny, I want you to go to bed at 8 tonight. If you said, hey, Johnny, do you want to go to bed at 8 or 8.30 tonight? You're giving them the illusion they have the choice. And anytime someone believes or actually does have the choice in the situation, they're going to be a lot more bought in. And they're probably going to say, I'll go to bed at 8.30 and take the later one. And you say, perfect, totally fine with me because you had those two outcomes to begin with. So I hope this wasn't too high level and it explains some portion of why I love NLP and why I think it's so powerful. Remember, these things are not just cool phrases or sayings, but they're ways to actually live and to practice your life. That's why I believe we're called NLP practitioners because we're practitioners of this field. It's not just a course we learn or something that we studied, but if this is something that you want to dive deeper into and get trained and certified in a field that I love so, so much, it'd be my pleasure to certify you. Uh, there'll be some information in the bio on how you can reach out, how you can see information about the next certification program. And until next time, have a great day. Bye-bye.